0: When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're going to talk about frogs and flies and the finger of God. The finger of God is flies in the story. And also a Russian named Tikhan um, who lived in America and came to a couple Episcopal services, at least, that we know of. Um, If you wanna Google the Fondue Lac Circus, Fondue Lac, F-O-N-D-U-L-A-C, Circus, um, you'll see a picture of him. As the plagues grow in intensity, Pharaoh's heart gets hardened harder and harder with every plague. And even with the respite from the plague, when the plagues are taken away, Pharaoh gets his heart hardened again, hardens his heart. This back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses and the Israelites is at the expense of so many people, so many victims of these plagues. Think of the people that live in Egypt that have their own troubles and own lives, and here they look up at that palace where Pharaoh lives and say, he's somehow to blame for all this. Um, The frogs in the bed, frogs in the cupboard, frogs in the water, frogs everywhere, frogs on the plain, frogs everywhere. It gets a little tiring, but the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt can make frogs too. So every time they do this, they minimize what Moses is doing. We can see this when people share the hardships of their lives or their people's lives or what's going on with them with others. It's easy to minimize what they are telling us. Um, It's easy. That's an impulse that humans have when someone shares something that is really hard and difficult to minimize it. Um, I grew up with a friend who I will not name. We were children together. And if ever I had uh, found a snake in my yard, he would always have a snake like in his basement. If I ever had a raccoon that was up in a tree, he had a raccoon in his attic, Um, minimizing what my experience was. I didn't realize it at the time, but there was a pattern. And I think about that a lot, that human propensity to, well, Maybe in our attempt to empathize and to share an experience with somebody, we take away from their experience with ours. Um, and the, the, the magicians of Egypt are showing or trying to show that Moses is nobody special. You don't have to worry about Moses. All he can do is cause some more frogs. Now, when these magicians cause the frogs to come, they're making things worse for everybody. They're making more frogs. So suddenly the plague of frogs, and then the plague of flies or gnats throughout the land of Egypt. But at this time, they try and they fail. The Egyptian magicians cannot make flies. They cannot make gnats. Um, Of all the plagues, you would think this would be the easiest to make. Leave out a piece of meat or have a barbecue or whatever it is, and you've got flies, you've got gnats. But this seems to be something completely different. In fact, the magicians say to Pharaoh, "This is the finger of God." Now God had promised Moses that he would deliver God's people with an outstretched arm and a strong arm. And now the Egyptian magicians are feeling the strength of this arm. If it only if only if it if if only it's just a finger, they are feeling the strength of God's arm. This is the finger of God. Have you ever been faced with a calamity, something bad that's happened to you, and thought, this is the finger of God? Now, this is something that is discussed in scripture a lot. When bad things happen, who is to blame? who is the source of calamity and hardship and bad things that we don't like. And there's a number of answers in the Christian faith for these things. Jesus answered them a couple times. Why is this one man born blind? Um, Was it something his parents did, they say to him? And Jesus says, no, it wasn't anything that his parents did or anything he did that he was born without being able to see. He was born um, not being able to see, so that this miracle could happen, Jesus makes it real simple. Don't go searching for uh, reasons for calamity and hardship and bad things necessarily, because sometimes there's really no point to it. Uh, stuff happens to us. Stuff, things happen, and in, in our in our attempt to search for a meaning, to make a meaning out of everything that happens to us, sometimes we latch onto ourselves and say, this is all my fault or this is all my parents' fault or somebody did something bad way back when and now I'm paying for it. There's another response to calamity when the little boy dies in the life of Elijah while he's staying with a family and the boy dies and Elijah and the, the woman, the mother of this boy says, this must be because of some sins I committed many years ago. We don't know what the sins were she was referring to. Elijah answers her back rather brusquely. No, that's not how this works. And he restores the child's life to him. Um, We see over and over again in scripture that we um, we don't necessarily see karma at work all the time in every calamity that happens to us. But here in this moment of judgment where the wicked Pharaoh and his henchmen, these magicians, um, they recognize that the that their the judgment is the finger of God, um, and maybe not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob necessarily. They just might say are saying, this is beyond us. Are these magicians admitting to the fact that they are just tricking everybody, that their magic is just magic tricks, when everybody else's, when Moses is in fact of supernatural origin? I'm not sure what they're saying here but they're recognizing that God is present in the story and the narrator's telling us that for a reason. Uh, So have you ever thought, this is the hand of God, this is the finger of God writing in my life. This is a message from God to stop, to take notice, to pay attention. Um, I think that's an okay thing to do. Um, Not that we always blame ourselves or past actions for something, but to recognize God's presence through what's happening in the world, what's happening to us, and what's happening um, in the calamities of life. And that's what they're doing. This is the finger of God. So they do it again. They say, let my people go. And they're not asking to be let go of slavery. They're just asking to be let go for three days so they can worship. This is what they're asking. And this is also the first plague That is only for the Egyptians. You can see a distinction being made by God between the Egyptians and God's people. God is forming them into an identity. God is forming them into a nation. God is forming them into a people that will bear his name in the world. And to do that, he's got to make those distinctions between those who are being judged with the flies and those who are being spared. So, This annoyance of the flies, this annoyance, is meant to cause Pharaoh to change, but he doesn't. But in his hardness of heart, as we've said before, that is where his change will happen. His heart will get so hard that he will do exactly what God wants him to do in frustration to let his people go. This is how God works in the world, in the story of the Exodus, the story of deliverance. And this is how God works through his son, Jesus Christ, that it is through the obstinacy of Jesus' enemies, through their hard-heartedness, that he goes to be crucified. Again and again, Jesus, it says he sets his face like a flint, like a hard stone towards Jerusalem. And his singular purpose in going towards Jerusalem and doing what he does in Jerusalem and saying what he says in Jerusalem is meant to provoke this kind of reaction in the people that hate him. Um, through, it is through the hardness of their hearts that God is working to save the world. It is through the hardness of their hearts that God is working to save God's people out of Egypt. So how does God work through the hardness of our enemies' hearts? I'm not so sure. I don't have a good answer for you. You'll have to meditate that on that one yourself. But when you're faced with someone whose heart is hardened, when it doesn't seem like they're changing their mind or going with the flow or willing to listen or anything like that, you can be sure that the finger of God is at work. The hand of God is at work. The outstretched arm of God is at work. And we should pray for those people because they are the ones that are dealing with God in the closest way possible. And not a good way, that is for sure. But they are not absent from God's interaction either. And neither are we. So we're part of this bigger story. Pray for those who have hard hearts. Um, pray Pray for our hard hearts that make us blind to the sufferings of others. That make us not able to listen to what people are saying to us. Amen. While life's dark maze I tread, and griefs around me spread, be Thou my guide. Bid darkness turn to day, wipe sorrow's tears away. Nor let me ever stray from Thee aside. Today we have a very special saint, or person the church recognizes um, today, April 7th. I'm um, going to put a picture up on the screen of this guy. Um, a collection of very handsome men there. Um, on the very far right is Tikhan, uh Vasily Ivanovich Belavin, um, known as Tikhon. He is the bishop, in this picture, of the Aleutians and Alaska, or Archbishop of the Aleutians and the Ala- of Alaska in the Russian Orthodox Church um, in North America. Uh, in this picture, this is called the Fond du Lac Circus. If, you're, if you've been around the Episcopal Church for a while, you've probably seen this photo go around. Um, the Fond du Lac Circus as it's called, was the consecration of a bishop, um, I forget his name, in Fond du Lac. And a number of Roman Catholic and Orthodox bishops came along uh, for that, including Tichon. Um, Tikhon, there on the far right, I think another bishop was with him, and then a seminarian, the guy that looks like Elon Musk, there with a cross around his neck, um, was there. Uh, But this event points to the the deep relationship that the Episcopal Church has had with the Russian Orthodox Church uh, because we share uh, a place called Alaska that used to be owned by Russia until um, Secretary Seward uh, worked out the deal with the state of Russia to buy Alaska from Russia. And there were Russian Orthodox Christians in Russia at the time, both in the native population of native Alaskans and from from russia um, as to, as today there are American Russian and Native American or native Alaskan uh peoples there, he was born in eighteen sixty five in January um, among peasants in a village where his father was priest in the Russian orthodox Church, even as a child he loved religion went to seminary at age thirteen where his classmates named him the Patriarch, so, you know, his sort of life trajectory, I guess, was sort of set from that time. At 23, he graduated and began to teach theology. Uh, Three years later, became a monk and was given the name Tikhon. He was consecrated the Archbishop of Lublin. As many of you know, the Russian or the Orthodox Church, including the Greek Orthodox Church um, and a number of other Orthodox churches that were part of the Eastern Christian, uh, world, uh, allow their clergy to marry, um, unless you want to be a bishop. If you want to be a bishop, you have to stay a monk and never get married. The problem, uh, the, the catch is you have to get married, uh, before you get ordained. Once you're ordained, you can't get married. So I guess your spouse sort of knows what they're getting into, or maybe the opposite. I'm not sure. Um, so many senior seminarians in the Orthodox Church are, uh, Asking around as they near graduation and ordination um, for marriage proposals—that's um, sort of how it works in that system. Um, but Tikhon, you know, growing up in Russia and was part of this world, he had chosen this life of being a monk and then eventually as a bishop, and moves to Russia or moves to Alaska to be the bishop there. He attends this, the Fond du Lac Circus, the ordination, consecration in 1900 of Bishop, now I have his name, Reginald Weller in the Diocese of Fond du Lac. Um, the, the Diocese of Fond du Lac is still an enclave of, uh, of uh, Anglo-Catholic uh, Episcopal Church worship and ritual up there in the north. And I think our chalice, one of our chalices that we use on Sunday and patents, are from a church that closed in the Diocese of Fond du Lac, I think, although it could be the next door neighbor diocese. I can't remember which diocese it's from. Um, anyway, he was part of the laying on of hands of this bishop. Um, the Anglican world, Anglican bishops and leaders throughout the centuries since the Reformation have looked to the church of the Orthodox churches as have the Lutheran churches in Germany when they broke from Rome, as a model of local Episcopal leadership that kept the threefold orders of ministry, bishop, priest, and deacon, and yet wasn't affiliated with the Pope in Rome. So Anglicans have always loved the traditions of the church, except for the Pope part. That's been a part that we've not really loved. And said, there's a way to be a Christian in historic apostolic succession, With bishop, ordaining bishop, ordaining bishops down through time, that isn't part of Rome. And the Orthodox Church has always shown that. In 1907, he returns to Russia and is elected as the Patriarch of Moscow in like 1917. So this is World War I is raging. Russian troops are fighting um, all throughout Europe in a losing fight um, in many ways, losing huge numbers of casualties Meanwhile, a revolution is happening back home that is affecting the morale of the troops. Um, Another young man at the time named Joseph Stalin is active in the leadership of the revolution. He's born in um, 1878. He's a little bit younger than Tikhon, another player on the stage of Russian politics at the time. The... um, A severe famine hits Russia in 1921 after the revolution. The church is in disarray. Tikhon orders the sale of churches to purchase food for the hungry as something that no other bishop has ever done or probably ever will do. He cared about people. There were Christians being killed for their faith by the communists who were trying to get control from the uh, Tsar's family. Um, As you know, that story, the Romanov story unfolding, And so it was a really tumultuous time. Um, And during this time, he tries to keep the peace. He tries to protect Christian communities um, and also to um, not antagonize the new communist leadership that has risen to power. He prayed, may God teach every one of us to strive for his truth and for the good of the Holy Church rather than something for our sake. He was imprisoned by the Soviets, by the communists, for more than a year, criticized both by the Communist Party and by Orthodox bishops who believed he had compromised too much with the government. So you really can't win sometimes. His enemies, political enemies, and his church enemies both thought he had done a bad job. He died on April 7th, 1925, worn out by his struggles. Um, But in 1989, after perestroika, glasnost, and the return of the of the autonomy of the Russian Orthodox Church, um, they declared him to be a saint in the church to show that what he had done to preserve the church and to preserve the lives of poor people during that time was something to be commended. Uh, When we look at the politics of the Russian Orthodox Church today in Russia with um, the current patriarch who is complicit with Vladimir Putin, with his invasion of Ukraine, we lament that, and we say, I wish he would stand up against um, his benefactor in that time. Um, and the Russian Orthodox Church has is very complicit in this invasion in Ukraine, and many church leaders, including the leadership of the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion, our Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, as, along with every other archbishop in our communion, has denounced his leadership um, and asked him to repent and asked him to change his mind and change his stance on the invasion of Ukraine. We are begging him and praying today that his mind would change. That would change, um, hopefully, things for the better in making peace in that part of the world. But it is unlikely, from my perspective, that that will happen. The Russian Orthodox Church in Russia has become, at the top, uh, very wedded to Putin's regime for many years now and has benefited greatly from that That is not to say that every Russian Orthodox supports Christian or priest or bishop supports the invasion. In fact, many have spoken out against it and have lost homes and jobs and other things for their witness to the faith. But the fact that what Tikon did to establish the Russian Orthodox Church in a very difficult time as communist communism was very anti-church, very anti-Christian, um, in a number of ways, by only allowing people over 18 to attend church services. They didn't want children to grow up being indoctrinated in the faith. Many Orthodox priests worked in factories and farms and other places, um, and, you know, were priests on the side and sometimes in secret, conducting secret baptisms and confirmations and weddings and other things to preserve the faith throughout the struggle of uh, the, the Soviet government. Um, Under Stalin and others, so we thank God for Tikhon and his witness to um, the authentic, true Christian faith of the Russian people, um, which is still there today. And we pray that that fire that he kindled and was and guarded will flare into a bright flame of truth that will burn through the lies and deceptions of the current administration. There, Holy God, Holy and Mighty, you call us together into one communion and fellowship. Open our eyes, we pray, as you open the eyes of your servant, Ticon, that we may see the faithfulness of others as we strive to be steadfast in the faith. Deliver to us that the faith delivered to us, that the world may see and know you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be glory and praise from ages and ages on.